The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Church family, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and this morning we're going to look at verses 12 through 21. And I'm in a series of messages, if you're just joining us, entitled Christmas and the Cross. For the last several months, I've been preaching in the book of Mark. And this holiday season, this Christmas season, I desire to stay there and to remind us of the Christmas message. It's not just a baby in Bethlehem, although that's important because that teaches us that the Lord God became Emmanuel, God with us. Though he is the transcendent God, he descended into the form of a, and came in the form of a man to live the perfect life we could never live, to die for our sins, to purchase our salvation, to be raised from the dead, to give a death blow to Satan, sin, and death forever. And so this is the reason we celebrate at Christmas, Christmas and the cross. We come to a peculiar passage this morning for the Christmas season. We come to a passage in which Jesus prepared his disciples or asked his disciples to make preparations for the Passover meal. Passover meal was instituted back in the book of Exodus when the children of God, the Israelites, were brought out of slavery, out of Egyptian captivity. You remember the Lord created and ordained a meal that they would observe to forever remember how they had been released from slavery. And now we see the Lord here shortly before his death, taking that meal, tweaking it and changing it and making it into something new. The Lord wanted to establish a new meal for the new covenant people. Whereas the old covenant people, the Jews in the Old Testament had the Passover, the Lord here instituted a meal we call the Lord's Supper. A meal designed as a perpetual memorial so that we may always remember what Jesus has done for us. So as a church this morning, let's not leave the Christmas message in a manger in Bethlehem. Let's remember that Jesus came, Galatians 4, 4, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem each and every one of us who were under the law of sin and death. Let's look at this meal this morning and let's gather some lessons from a holiday meal. I want to speak on that subject, lessons from a holiday meal. Now, how many of y'all are going to observe a holiday meal in a couple of weeks? How many of y'all have special traditions with the meal, certain foods you eat? How many of y'all, your family does something different? I mean, you're sick of turkey and ham, so at Christmas you do something a little bit different. All right, that's, that's my family. We've done shrimp boils on Christmas Day before. My grandmother, she was raised near San Francisco, California. She married my grandfather when he came back from World War II. He was from Columbus, Georgia. And then uh, he met her there when he came back from World War II. They married, they migrated. He pastored throughout the country, ended up, last place he pastored was in Georgia. But she had a tradition going back to her mother growing up there around San Francisco that they had Chinese food on Christmas Eve. And so I always enjoyed that, going to grandma's house and getting the good presents and a good, some good Chinese food that my grandmother made. 
So we had that holiday tradition. Jesus and his disciples had a holiday meal here that was a tradition, and Jesus tweaked it. He changed it, and there's some important lessons we can gather from this meal. And let's hear them this morning. Let's cast our eyes, yes, to Bethlehem this Christmas season, but let's also cast our eyes to Calvary and remember the cross. And let's know this this morning. If we don't appropriately remember the cross this Christmas season, many of us may stay shackled to indwelling sin. Many of us may miss out on the joy of the true Christmas message. Many of us this morning, if we don't grasp the meaning of this meal, may miss out on eternity in the presence of God. Many may still stay in their sins. This, this meal also has great meaning when it comes to the body of Christ. It reminds us that we have a new family in Jesus. And if we don't hear the words of our Lord this morning, we may miss out on the blessings of the body of Christ. Lessons from a holiday meal. What lessons do we need to learn? I believe there are a few in our text this morning. First of all, the passage before us reminds us that we have a new family. So you as a believer this morning on the Lord's Day here, December 13th, because of what Jesus has done in our text, you can boldly leave here saying this, I have a new family. Now, some would perhaps like a new family, amen? Or oh me. So you may gather at the Christmas season and there may be people gathering with you and you think, wow, I get to be with them again. I think of the movie Home Alone. Anybody ever watched this movie before? Is this on anybody's watch list this Christmas season? All right. I think we have a picture of Kevin McAllister. Can you guys put that up on the screen? This is from, from one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Now, I will say this. Um, children, if you're here, Kevin is not a good example, all right? Laura gets nervous every time we watch this. Now, we wouldn't do that, kids, right? We would not talk to our mother that way. I remember watching that same grandmother cook the Chinese Christmas meal. I remember watching this with her, and she said, oh, my, that boy needs his mouth washed out with soap. So, indeed, Kevin McAllister, not the best example, but this is one of my favorite scenes right here. This is right after he says, I made my family disappear. He thought that his words had the power to do that. Now, there are times we may desire to make our family disappear, right? Well, Jesus here reminds us that we have a new family. Look at verse number 12 and follow along in the text. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? Now, notice here, that it is the first day of the unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. These two holidays often went together. Passover lambs were typically slaughtered on 14 Nisan that day in the Jewish calendar. They were typically prepared on the afternoon that concluded that day. Now in Jewish reckoning, a day began at sundown on what we would call the previous day. So if you're a Jew in the first century, you think that Monday would start around 6 p.m. this evening. And so that helps us if you get into studying the details of the text here. It helps you understand the time frame here. Many believe that this is Thursday evening before the crucifixion on Friday. 
Now, it's important to note that Jesus here is calling for the preparations of the Passover meal. The disciples are calling for the, pa- the preparations of the Passover meal a little bit earlier. That's important. Why? We're going to see that Jesus is doing the Passover a little bit different. You know, many people get into studying the chronology of the Holy Week and they get all tore up from the floor up. They want everything in an exact airtight calendar. We, we see here in Jesus' actions as we go through this text that he, with purpose and intentionally, did things a little bit different. Why? Well, there were some practical issues involved. We, we know by studying history that Jews during the Passover week and Pentecost gave permission for people to not follow the exact calendar and the exact procedures laid out by Moses in the Old Testament. Why? Well, there was so many people. Go back to Mark chapter 11. You'll see that there was thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time. Many would estimate over half a million had descended upon the city to observe the Passover. So because of that, things were so crowded, people many times could not eat the Passover when they were supposed to eat the Passover on Friday. So there were some liberties. You can eat it on Thursday evening. That's technically Friday. So we see Jesus tweaking things here. Why? Because practically speaking, you, you couldn't, not everyone in the city could eat the Passover on Friday. But Jesus also tweak the Passover, not just for practical reasons, but for spiritual reasons, for theological reasons. Jesus wanted to demonstrate that he had come to bring something that was new to the traditional Jewish mind. We're going to see this point even more in just a minute, but look at verse 13. As the text continues, it says, He sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, some people read this text and they think that there's some spooky, mysterious things going on here as if Jesus is exercising power of unsuspecting individuals. They, they read the text and believe that Jesus is giving his disciples some sort of Jedi mind tricks. The master says he needs the room. The master says you need the room. We will take you there. That's not what's going on in the text here. We see here a very practical situation. Jesus had arranged a pre-arranged signal with some disciple he had in the city. We know going back to Mark chapter 11 that Jesus had committed disciples living in Bethany in the vicinity around Jerusalem. And it seems that he had made arrangements with the disciple in the city so that he could rent a room in this individual's house for he and his 12 disciples to observe the Passover. This was very common in first century Jerusalem. It's kind of like when the masters comes to Augusta. Have y'all heard about this? How a lot of people rent out their homes for people to stay. Of a friend, his brother lives there, and every year they 
go on a vacation somewhere and they rent out their home and it pays for their vacation for them to go on a vacation somewhere else. Now, I couldn't do that. I'd be stressed out while I'm on vacation somewhere else. What are they doing in my home? Well, in first century Jerusalem, people often rented out accommodations within their house to pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus here has a disciple who's allowed him to rent out a room, and he arranges a pre-arranged signal. Hey, hey, boys, go into the city. You're going to find a man with a water jar. Who is this guy? What's going on? Well, many believe, many point out a cultural custom that traditionally women were one, ones who carried water jars and transported water. Women were, men were tasked, excuse me, women were tasked with carrying water. Men were traditionally tasked with carrying wine. So Jesus here has asked the disciple in the city, hey, have some strange, out of the ordinary signal for my disciples. Have a man walking around with a water jar. No one would ever see that. And when they see that, they'll know that's the guy who's made arrangements for us to Keep the Passover at his master's house. Why was Jesus operating in such a secretive fashion? Remember going back to Mark chapter 11, verse 18. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are working very hard at this moment to find a way to get Jesus killed. Now, Jesus is not trying to hide from them because he's scared of them or he wants to avoid the cross. Jesus here is being strategic to keep himself alive as long as possible. He knows he's born to die, but before he dies, he wants to hold this Passover meal in a new type of way to teach his disciples some important new covenant truth. So he has this prearranged signal, secretive, to keep he himself and his disciples safe until the precise moment. So they go to the guest room. The man takes them to the guest room. Jesus says, you'll find it furnished and ready. That meant that there would be carpets there to sit on, pillows to sit on. There'd be the necessary utensils and dishware already placed there for Jesus and his disciples to observe the Passover. Jesus had made prearrangements. And then he tells the disciples, look in the text. He said, he'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples once there would need to perhaps bake bread, mix the customary sauces for dipping the bread. Maybe they even roasted a goat or lamb, an animal roasted lamb, excuse me. They made the preparations for the meal. The Bible continues in the description of the way in which they observed the meal. Look in your Bible, verse 16. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, verse 17, he arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus began to talk to them. Now, I want you to notice before we move on, this phrase, reclining and eating. Reclining and eating. Everybody say those two words. Reclining and eating. 
There is great meaning in these two terms. There is important truth for you this morning in these words, reclining and eating. This morning, there are great spiritual realities in these words, reclining and eating. First of all, these words remind us that the Lord's Supper should never be a stuffy, self-righteous, legalistic, formalistic type of thing. When the Lord ordained the first Lord's Supper, he wasn't caught up on protocol and processes. He wasn't caught up on exterior garments and religious tradition. This was a meal of wonderful, relaxed fellowship and intimacy. The focus wasn't on pharisaical-like religious tradition. The focus was on spending time with Jesus and reflecting on the gospel message. Oh, wait, may we be on guard forever of becoming like the Pharisees of old and reducing the Christian message and the gospel and the blood, body and blood of Christ to mere formalism. May we stand on guard against the traditions of Rome and other forms of religion that just focus on exteriors and never get to the heart of the matter and that overlook the need for gospel transformation. We see here that this meal is one taken in a relaxed atmosphere, reclining and eating. In the first century world, if one enjoyed a meal with closest counterparts with family or friends, you would often sit on the floor on pillows and maybe lean on one another and relax. Now, if I'm having a meal at your house just for free, don't lean on me, all right? That's first century culture, it's 21st century culture. But at the same time, catch the meaning. Jesus wasn't afraid to do that. Engage in cultural tradition. And this was a relaxed atmosphere, a relational atmosphere. We have an old picture that often messes up our view of the Lord's Supper. This is Leonardo da Vinci's Lord's Supper meal. They're all at this big table with more modern plates and dishes and even what looks like to be leavened bread. They're all sitting on one side of the table. Now, Leonardo put some great meaning. If you've ever studied this piece, he placed some great meaning here in uh, the posture of the disciples. There's a lot to be studied there and some truth that can be gained and some spiritual insight and lessons from that painting. But hey, here's the problem with this painting. They weren't at a table. They weren't sitting as Westerners sit. They were on the floor in a very relaxed atmosphere. So this reclining and eating has great truth for us here that when we take of the Lord's Supper, and, and it's a good lesson for us during coronavirus, we're doing a little bit different, and part of us may kind of, may kind of bristle up at the fact that we're doing it like this. Let's remember the goal here isn't protocol and process and religion. The goal here is relational. Remembering what the body and the blood of Christ has done for us. But I, I want you to see th this second truth here with this idea of reclining and eating. In the first century world, most faithful Jews in accordance with Exodus 12, 1 through 3, only ate the Lord's Supper with their family. 
If you wanted to faithfully observe the Lord's Supper in accordance with Old Testament Scripture, you ate it with your family alone. And here we see Jesus as the Son of God, with authority as the one who was the Word of God, breaking with that tradition. Why? To teach us he's doing something new. To demonstrate that a greater meal has arrived. One greater than Moses was on the scene. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus also demonstrates in this that Christians, through Christ, have a new family. When we are born of the Spirit, when we are washed by the blood of Christ, we are adopted into a new spiritual family. And although our families of origin definitely have importance, we have a greater family, in a sense, now in the body of Christ. In Christ, Christians have a spiritual family that brings spiritual encouragement, support, edification, and strength that a mere natural family could never bring. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 speaks of how this family is important and we should never neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but we should be in the habit of encouraging each other and all the more as we see the last days approaching. Jesus often in Mark's gospel talked about the importance of this family. In Mark 3, 34 through 35, earlier in this gospel message, he looked at those sitting in the inner, inner circle around him while his mom and his brothers were saying he's out of his mind. And Jesus said, here are, pointing to disciples, pointing to people like you, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So know this great teaching that Jesus gives us from the Lord's Supper, from the Passover meal that he transformed. In Christ, you have a new family. In the 21st century American world that's so oftentimes so individualistic, remember this, when you were saved, Ephesians chapter 1, you were adopted and placed into a new spiritual family. And it is Christ's will, it is his desire for your life, for you to regularly connect and to be a part of this family. It is his desire for you to be open and honest with other Christians. He wants you to have Christian friends with whom you can share life. He believes you need to regularly gather for this time of worship and to have the word poured into your souls. He knows that you need to connect in some way with a circle of believers who can rally around you and help you and build you up and bless you in the faith. We do that through life groups here. The Lord knows that you need this. Why? Because we've got a world that wants to discourage you. And as a result, you need a family to encourage you. We got a world that is working so hard to tear us down and Jesus has ordained the church, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, to build you up. got a world that's going to bring so much hurt and you need a people a Christian a circle friends to really to regularly help you and to give you hope see what Jesus is doing in this Lord's Supper he's wanting to communicate to his disciples they have a new family 
Number two this morning, we've got a meal with some important lessons. There's a second lesson we can learn here. And I'll say it like this. The Lord's Supper reminds me I need to check myself. I need to check myself. Now, my mom growing up had all types of cliches she used to warn us when we were about to get in trouble. One of them was, you're cruising for a bruising. I knew what that meant. Straighten up. We were at a restaurant recently with uh, the children, and there were some kids there that were climbing over tables and on chairs. The parents were just sitting over there eating. And Will said, Daddy, when you were a boy, did you ever do that? I said, heavens no. That had been the last time I'd go out to eat anywhere. Cruising for a bruising, right? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. So there's a lot of types of cliches. Another one, I don't know if I heard this from uh, my mom growing up, but one I would often hear growing up was this, maybe from a teacher, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right, those are some real encouraging statements, okay? But they, they got through. I knew what they were talking about, all right? Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Know this. Spiritually, Jesus knows this. You need to regularly check yourself. There's something wrong in your spiritual life if you never stand before the mirror and say, Oh, Lord, is there anywhere where I need to change? I often pray the words of the psalmist, search me and try me, O Lord, and see if there be any evil way within me. And please, by your grace, lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, there's something wrong in the church when so many are professionals at pointing out what's wrong with everyone else, at speaking their minds of how others need to change. Is there not any humility? Is there not any Christian virtue? Oh, may the Lord humble us so that under his mighty hand so that he can exalt us in due time. And may we learn to engage regularly in self-examination. May we learn the words of that old chorus. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Look at how Jesus here encourages his disciples in this regard. Points out the need for self-examination at this meal. He says, while they were reclining, verse 18, and eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Who is that guy he's talking about? Y'all tell me. Judas. The gospel writer did not shy away from telling of Judas' participation in this meal. Now, this helps me a little bit because there's this movement in the 21st century church with some and some even I'd call great brothers in the faith who have a strong desire for the Word of God, they get a little bit too strict with the Lord's Supper. I can remember my mom telling of the time in which her and her mother were refused the Lord's Supper at a church because folks in that church knew that my grandmother had been divorced. There's some who are just, I believe, too strict with the Lord's Supper, and they want to make sure everybody's saved and everybody knows what they're doing. Let's remember Jesus had an apostate at the first Lord's Supper. Now, sure, we're going to see there needs to be introspection, there needs to be examination, but again, we've got to avoid the spirit of legalism with the Lord's Supper. Jesus calls out, he says, there's one here that's going to betray me. In verse 19, they began to be distressed and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. One could literally translate the question from the Greek as surely I not. There's emphasis on the personal pronoun I. 
Notice that the disciples have an air of holy nervousness. They're not pointing the finger at others. They're wondering, is it I? Am I, is it me? Am I the one? Surely not I. We see here Mark, we believe, emphasizing the need of a healthy degree of self-concern, self-examination regularly on the part of Christians, especially at the Lord's Supper. See, Mark had already portrayed Mark 9.34 and Mark 10.37 that the disciples, that the 12, that Peter, James, and John especially had an unhealthy and ungodly sense of overconfidence. The Lord here had already warned them in Mark's gospel that Peter would deny Jesus. He'll later warn them that all of them will be tempted to run when he is arrested. And Mark here includes these events from the Lord's Supper to remind us that believers should always have a sense of Holy Spiritual caution. Shouldn't it be our MO, our modus operandi, to continually look at others' lives and examine and think this is what they need and that's where they need to change? We should have the habit of regularly looking into our own souls and looking to Jesus so that he can shape us and make us into all that he wants us to be. And the Lord's Supper is a great opportunity for us to get practice in this very thing. Jesus intended this holy occasion to be a time in which we look on an element that represents the blood of Christ. We look on an element that represents the body of Christ and we ask ourselves this, do I know Jesus? Have I been washed in his blood? Will my body one day be sent to hell or will it go to heaven? Have I embraced and received this gospel message? It's an opportunity to examine ourselves in that regard, but it's also an opportunity as believers, ones who have embraced the gospel message, to ask ourselves, am I living in a way that is worthy of the body and blood of Christ? Is King Jesus first in my life? Is there any secret and indwelling sin? Is there any person against whom I'm holding a grudge? Is all right, is everything all right between my heart and the Lord? Paul taught us that this should be our practice in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, he said, let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Forever eats and drinks without recognizing the body and eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this morning, in just a moment, we're gonna take of the bread and take of this juice that represents the body of Christ. It's an opportunity for us to press the spiritual pause button in our life for just a moment and to get some good practice at spiritual self-examination. It's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, is there anything in my life, this present moment, that I'm aware of that's keeping me from walking with the Lord, from being a witness for Him, It's an opportunity for some to look in the mirror and ask yourself, are you indeed in Christ? Have you really been saved? Have you truly repented of sin and believed the gospel message? Have you been born again? Has the body and blood of Christ 
ever become real meaningful in your life? It's the time for self-examination. If we don't engage in such a self-examination, if we don't check ourselves, we could indeed spiritually wreck ourselves. The author of Hebrews spoke of the way in which many trample on the Son of God and regard as profane the blood of the covenant by the way they live. So we've got to examine ourselves this morning. Check ourselves. Jesus and this new meal, this holiday meal, encourages this very thing. Let's look at one last truth and then we'll take of the elements. The Lord's Supper lastly reminds us that Jesus can fix what is broken. Look at verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the 12, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. Now, in the first century Passover observances, you would have unleavened bread. Think pita bread. You would also have a bowl with olive, maybe some dried fruit and vegetables in there, different herbs and spices, olive oil mixed with all of that in there, and bitter herbs. It's meant to remind the Jews of the bitterness of Egyptian slavery. And one would dip this bread and eat it. The bowl of the dipping sauce was a shared bowl. Now, that would mess a lot of y'all up, right? I mean, y'all can't even go to El Nopal or Los Arcos, and you, you have to have them bring that little individual bowl of salsa, lest you dare double dip with someone. But here they had a shared bowl. It really goes back to that family atmosphere. It reminds of the oneness between the people of God. I want you to see what's going on in this text here. Judas, the very one who will betray Jesus, had his hand in the bowl with his bread at the very same time as Jesus. For Jews, this was a sign of deep intimacy and relational connection and family fidelity. To think that a betrayer would actually share the dipping sauce the one he was going to betray was heinous and wicked. And Mark means to convey the total depravity of this man, Judas. But he also means to convey the great thing that Jesus would do. See, Judas would run from the mill in just a few moments, another gospel writer would tell us. And he would stand as an emblem for all generations of sin and betrayal None would dare perhaps even name their child Judas because of the heinous, wicked, depraved actions of this man. But in all of this, Jesus demonstrates that he came to earth to redeem humankind, to pay for the sins of those who were estranged from God. See, and although apart from Christ, all of us are dead and our trespasses and sin, all of us deserve eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us, so that whoever believes and trusts in Jesus, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be made white as snow, though an ocean separates you from the presence of God 
Through Jesus, you can be brought near. Though you are broken, you can be fixed through the person of Jesus. We see Jesus' allusion to the gospel here. In verse 21, notice how he closes the Lord's Supper. He says, for the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Jesus likes to use that phrase, it is written. He has used it often in Mark's gospel. And when Jesus uses it, it is a catchphrase. It is a code word to show that Jesus is referring back to the scriptures. He is showing that even he as the son of God does not base his teaching on the opinions of men or his own thoughts. He bases his teaching on thus saith the Lord. Here on the basis of thus saith the Lord, Jesus reminds his 12, he had a mission. He had come in accordance with Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of Satan. He had come as a fulfillment of ancient prophecies, Isaiah 53. And we see here Jesus in the midst of Judas' betrayal, reminding his disciples, teaching his disciples that he had come, Revelation 13, 8, as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And Jesus was God's remedy, God's answer for all of our messed up brokenness. He came to fix us, to restore us, to bring us back into a right relationship with God. And Jesus wasn't just some Johnny-come-lately rabbi, teacher, religious leader. He was the plan of the one eternal God from the beginning of time to make all of the wrongs in this world right. He was just revealed when the fullness of time had come to completion. Galatians 4.4. And so as believers this morning, this Christmas season, Christmas and the cross, oh, don't just leave him as a baby in a manger. Remember from this holiday meal, he came to give you a new family. And he came here, we see, to fix what is broken. And this calls us to check ourselves. If you're a believer here this morning, you can have strong confidence that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed, that you are restored. You don't have to live in shame, guilt, fear, insecurity, anxiety. You don't have to worry about your eternal destination. You don't have to be in bondage to the spirit of this world. You don't have to get tore up when you see all the things going on in this world. You know you have a mansion over the hilltop because of what Christ has done. This morning, if you've never been saved, if you've never been born again, hear this strong message and hear the words of Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And in order for you, to have forgiveness of sins and to live eternally with him. For, in order for you to have the life for which you were created, you need to look to the blood and body of Christ. This morning, we want to observe the Lord's Supper, and I want to direct our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And before we take of the elements, I want to remind you that uh, Jesus instituted this meal that been, then Paul instructed for the church to regularly take of this meal. So I want to ask you to go ahead and take your elements and prepare them. Remember that this meal is a meal by which we remember what Jesus has done for us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Jesus said, this is my body when he had the bread, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
So my question for you this morning is, do you have something to remember? If the purpose of this meal is to remember what Jesus has done for you, do you have something to remember? Have you ever been truly saved? See, the question's often out, out there, who can take of the Lord's Supper? I would say this morning, if you have been saved, if you have been born again, if you have truly believed in the body and blood of Jesus for salvation, I invite you to take of this meal. If you've never truly done that, hold on to the elements. In just a minute, we're going to have an invitation where people can pray and where people can be saved. During that invitation, you respond. You come forward and tell me you want to become a Christian. We'll have somebody pray with you, talk to you about what that means. And then right after they pray with you, you can take of these elements to remember what Christ has done for you. But for the rest of us here that would want to remember what Christ has done, remember that Jesus came 100% God, 100% man, and he gave his body on our behalf. Why? So that our sinful, finite, fallen, mere human bodies don't have to perish forever in a place called hell. So that one day we can have a redeemed, renewed, restored body, glorified body that lives forever for millions of years in the new heaven and the new earth. So we say thank you, Jesus, for your body. Although our, our bodies are finite and fallen, sinful, you gave your body on our behalf. He said, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him. Then Jesus took a cup containing the fruit of the vine, as Mark would tell us in his gospel message. In the first century world, the color of the fruit of the vine looked like blood. And in God's plan of salvation, since the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, it's the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 17, 11, blood has always been a symbol or a token for life. Why? Because the ancients knew this is fluid that sends life-sustaining nutrients throughout the body. They knew well that when one bleeds too much, one dies. Life is in the blood. So our sin deserves death, but Jesus gave his blood as a symbol to show that where you deserve death because of your brokenness and your sin, Jesus and what he did brings life. So this morning, if you have believed in the blood of Jesus for salvation, he said, take and drink this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.